Sorry about that delay, everybody. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here. I'm a proud member, and I'm really delighted to have all of you with us today. It's Tuesday, June 22nd. We're here for a special virtual City Club forum featuring the Ohio 11th District Democratic primary debate. The 11th Congressional District is one of two majority minority Ohio districts protected under the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It is a seat that carries the legacy of Louis Stokes, Stephanie Tubbs Jones, and Marsha Fudge, who left the seat earlier this year when she was confirmed as the 18th Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Tonight, we will hear from eight candidates who believe they deserve your vote. For this debate, the City Club Debate Committee led by City Club members Bill Lavezzi, Jennifer Lumpkin, and Will Tarter, have established criteria for participation. Number one, candidates had to be on the ballot. Number two, they had to have properly met all appropriate filing requirements of the Federal Elections Commission. And three, they had to have at least three publicly available policy position statements on a campaign website, social media platform, blog, or other digital platform. And finally, they had to agree to the debate rules set forth by the City Club Debate Committee. Of the 14 candidates who will appear on the ballot when early voting begins next month, eight Democrats and one Republican met those criteria. We had planned to do an event with that one Republican, Laverne Jones-Gore, earlier today, uh, but we canceled that event at the request of the campaign. Our moderator tonight is ML Schultze. She's a reporter and retired digital editor at WKSU. Schultz, was part of a local and national reporting team with National Public Radio covering the 2016 elections. She was also named Best Radio Reporter in Ohio by the Society of Professional Journalists. We're delighted to work with her tonight. Welcome, Schultz. Schultz, you're still on mute. At least it happened to you and not one of the candidates. Hold on, you got on mute. Okay, better? Go. Yep. Believe it or not, I never do that during our family Zooms. I only do it on official functions. <laughs> I do thank you, Dan, for the introduction. And I thank all of the candidates for being here tonight for this vitally important debate. Uh, before I introduce those candidates, I do wanna go over the rules of the debate. Candidates will each have 45 seconds for opening statements. The order was determined by a random drawing earlier today. The questions may be directed to all or specific candidates and the candidates will have 60 seconds to respond. It's my discretion to allow the candidates, other candidates, 30 minute, 30 second rebuttals. Keeping with City Club tradition, questions directly from the audience were submitted to the City Club's debate committee prior to this evening's event. Questions that were deemed fair, relevant, and related to important community concerns were included. Audience questions will be identified as such during the debate, and as often as possible, we see those questions as the ones leading the debate. Candidates may not have an opportunity to respond to every question, but if a candidate believes they need to be recognized, they should physically raise their hand so it's visible on camera. At the end, each candidate will have 45 seconds for a closing statement. The order of that was also determined by random drawing earlier. Our timekeeper will display a green card at 30 seconds, a yellow card at 15 seconds, and a red card when time is up. I will respectfully remind candidates who go over their time that their time is up. If a candidate continues to speak after being reminded, the City Club reserves the right to mute their microphone, and just like me, they are the ones who will have to unmute their microphone. Now let me introduce the candidates. John Barnes, 
former Ohio State Representative for Ohio's 12th District, Chantel Brown, Chair of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party and District 9 Representative of the Cuyahoga County Council, Seth Corey, Pediatric Hematologist and Oncologist, Jeff Johnson, Court Administrator for Cleveland Housing Court, Will Knight, an activist, Tariq K. Shabazz, veteran of the U.S. Navy, Shirley Smith, former state senator for Ohio's 21st district, and Nina Turner, former state senator for Ohio's 25th district. As I said, the speaking order was determined by random drawing earlier today, and our candidates will have 45 seconds to give their opening statements in this order. We will start with Tariq Shabazz, then Chantel Brown, Nina Turner, Seth Corey, Will Knight, Shirley Smith, John Barnes, and Jeff Johnson. Mr. Shabazz, will you please begin? I want to say thank you to the City Club for all for inviting me. My name is Tariq K. Shabazz, and I'm running for the United States House of Representatives for the 11th Congressional District of Ohio. I'm a husband, I'm a Navy veteran, I'm a political scientist. As I say all the time, before I was any of those things, I was just that young man who grew up in inner city Cleveland, Ohio. I know the trauma that so many of these individuals in this district are facing. It's time that we have a leader, one of which that actually has led people and understands the actual difficulties that people are going through. I have a master's in public policy, so I do have a, a comprehensive understanding of how to create legislative, uh, legislative uh, legislation. I would like to be your fighter in Congress. Allow me to be your megaphone. You will no longer feel voiceless. Send me to Congress, and I will make sure that we get rid of all of these things that are affecting and impacting our ability to put civil rights legislation in. We are in the civil rights movement. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Brown? Thank you, City Club. Thank you for hosting this event today. I am Chantel Brown, and I am currently a county council representative for the 9th District. I am also the Democratic Party chairperson, the only candidate in this race with any legislative experience during some of the most troublesome and turbulent times in our nation's history. And I didn't just wake up and decide I want to go to Congress, nor am I trying to fulfill a lifelong fantasy of becoming the next congressional member. What I am doing is hoping to represent the people of 11th Congressional District. I have a record, a resume, and the relationships to deliver and to continue delivering the results for the people in the 11th Congressional District. So I am asking you for your support today to send Chantel Brown to Congress to keep getting things done for the 11th Congressional District. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Turner. Thank you, City Club. It's such a pleasure to be here with you tonight. I am Nina Turner. I am a daughter of the city of Cleveland, a daughter of this district. I have served this district in many capacities. I am running to be a voice for change, to uplift the downtrodden, including the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class. You send me to Congress. I am going to make sure that we tax the wealthy, make them pay their fair share, and to center the people who need it the most in this district. You will always know whose side I'm standing on. The most important thing for this district is to ensure that the people who are left behind are no longer left behind and that the body politic of this nation bends towards the will of the people who absolutely need it the most. I'm Nina Turner and I am running for Congress to be your voice for change. Thank you. Dr. Corey. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Seth Corey. I'm a pediatrician, not a professional politician. I am running because I want to have Cleveland Akron thrive. Our district is the 12th poorest in the country. Our air is the ninth dirtiest. 
Our water has more lead levels than Flint, Michigan. Good health for everyone is not just physical. It is also mental, social, legal, environmental, and economic. As your representative, I will bring my compassion, level-headedness, experience on the front line in both biomedical research and healthcare to improve the health of all of our citizens, end disparities, and help fix a broken healthcare system. The politicians can't fix the potholes in Cleveland, so send me to Congress to fix the potholes in Washington and improve the health of the citizens of the 11th District. Thank you, Dr. Corey. Mr. Knight? Uh, good evening. Thank you, City Club, for having me. My name is Will Knight. I'm from Shaker Ice, Ohio, and I'm a graduate of The Ohio State University. The reason why I'm running is because I fear I've been noticing the lack of leadership in our area, in our cities, in our state, and in the Democratic Party. And what's been going on with leadership and lack thereof, we are now in a fight with the Republicans to try and keep that, to be able to preserve our voting rights. And without those, those issues, none of these other things that we're arguing about are going to matter. So I'm here to help lead like I do high school wrestling and business within my community and have a diverse voice with many people who are frustrated with the current situation we have in politics. Thank you. Ms. Smith. Thank you so much for city. Thank you so much city club for allowing me to be here. It is certainly an honor, but I am running because I truly believe in what this process tries to achieve good education, quality health care, uh, women's equality. But on the other, on the other half, uh, when, this seat, when this seat became open, it gave me an opportunity to continue to fight for the poor, the impoverished, uh, people that don't have a chance to uh, see things on their own. But it also gave me an opportunity to build upon those things that we have in this district that are positive, like the great talent, the academia and medical institutions, and also the wonderful centers of art that we have in this district. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. John Barnes. You're muted. John Barnes. I'm qualified, experienced, and I have a proven track record of getting things done. In these trying times, we have a lot of great things happening in Northeast Ohio. The only problem is it's not good enough. And we need leadership. We don't need rhetoric. In Congress, I will put people first. Barnes is about the business of saving lives, the first class constituent services, COVID-19 pandemic recovery, senior programs, job creation, healthcare choices, fighting poverty, education, careers, and infrastructure and criminal justice. Vote Barnes. Thank you all very much. We'll dive right in with one of the questions more. that came up in several. I'm sorry, Mr. Johnson, <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's what I get for turning a page. <laughs> Not a problem. Thank you for the opportunity to um, um, be involved with this. Um, event today. I am the most qualified, the most experienced, just like the previous three holders of this office. They were attorneys, they were qualified, they were proven. I'm the only attorney in the race, and I'm the most qualified. 23 years of elected legislator, nine years as a state senator, 14 years as a Cleveland City Council member. I've spent 30 years in public service, serving as a director for J former Mayor Jane Campbell's um, cabinet, as well as right now, I'm the court administrator for the Cleveland Housing Court. Three branches of local government, two levels of government, 
It's not logical for me now to go to the federal government and be able to work on the behalf. I'm an attorney with three college degrees, masters and bachelors. I have been in the streets of Cleveland throughout these years. I have not gone anywhere. So looking forward to talking today. Okay. I, we will dive right in with a question that came from the public. Um, just a year ago, protests and clashes with police dominated the city streets and the headlines and the repercussions have reverberated since. This is the case in the country and certainly the case in Cleveland. I'm gonna ask this as of, of a couple of you and I'm going to start with Mr. Johnson. What, if you are elected, police reforms would you advocate at the federal level? And what should be done at the federal level to support and enforce local reforms? Well, first of all, we should pass the George Floyd Justice Act, which deals with, um, from the standpoint of at least the federal government and, and this police force to be able to, and, and be able to stop chokeholds, be able to use a power, also the power of our money to make sure that local states also get rid of chokeholds, get rid of the no-knock warrants. I don't support the term um, defund the police, but I do support the idea of redistribution of funds, being able to bring in professional, for example, behavioral health professionals, to be able to include them when we deal with the, the, um, um, the, the definition of public safety. If police officers are doing too much and we're expecting too much of them. So I also at the national level, would push to, to deal with guns, to get rid of assault weapons and, and close the loopholes, to be able to help us fight the crime and, and be able to, to talk about getting rid of the immunity for police, which the George Floyd Act would do. So totally start with that and continue to work and pressure the states. Thank you. Ms. Smith, could you respond to that question as well? What specific reforms would you like to see? Absolutely. I would like to see a uniform <clears throat> training for police. I, I think that uh, if we did that and something that's very similar to what the Green Beret get, uh, that we would be uh, more comfortable in, in policing. Not only that, I think that we should have a, a sentencing, uh, sentencing reform across the board for uh, all, all states. Uh, there should also be an insurance um, uh, regulations that police would have to make sure they they fill the seat. I'm sorry that, that they would have to make sure that they register with the insurance company to give them uh, or give us a look at their violations or their uh, the whatever they whatever they are doing to uh, against our citizens in in the city. Um, I also would think that that data would be carried on so that we would recognize what's being done across the country. So if they do commit violations, those things can be highly recognized. Thank you. Across the country. Mr. Shabazz, your thoughts? Uh, number one, I want to agree with uh, one of my colleagues that brought up the George Floyd Police Justice, uh, Justice Act. Um, but I believe we need to go a step further. We got to go past reimagining policing. Uh, we have to do an entire uh, change on our criminal justice system. Number one, we need to make sure we remove the cash bail system. The cash bail system is, is predicated on the basis of your financial status, which stipulates your actual pretrial releasement. We need to move towards a more of an impartial uh, assessment-based system. We also need to address when uh, police officers are actually committing atrocities and civil rights violations against the people that we need to hold them accountable. We also need to hold uh, prosecutors accountable who continuously utilize their, pro their uh, power to suppress uh, actual justice from occurring. Uh, we need to also acknowledge the fact that uh, 
our, our jail cells are filled with so many young black men and Latinos. America, we're 5% of the world's total population, yet we're 25% of the world's prison population. We are not the home of the brave and land of the free with numbers like that. That is absolutely ridiculous. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Ms. Turner, your thoughts. Well, just to add some finer points, I do agree with everything that my colleagues have just said. We need true transformation and the challenges of policing is bigger than policing. This is about a, a system that actually sees the poor, black, brown, indigenous, people of color somehow more criminal and different. So policing is just a microcosm of larger problems in this society that we absolutely must deal with. So definitely I agree with the George Floyd Justice Act. I wanna make sure that we have no more private prisons or immigration uh, centers. I don't think that companies should be able to make a profit off of other people's misery. In terms of uh, police or other law enforcement agencies, I believe that psychological testing should happen for law enforcement on a regular basis, not to be punitive, but it is a stressful profession. I have people in my family who are in policing and also uh, former uh, law enforcement as well, and I know how challenging it is. And to make sure that we uplift the fact that that the that the the system itself must not see people of color as somehow different than others. I do agree. Thank you. Thank you. I want to move to another question that was key among members of the public who submitted them. Uh, the Cleveland area has been living with wide health disparities for decades. The average lifespan in Lindhurst, for example, is 12 years longer than in Glenville. And then came COVID. From death rates to hospitalizations, people of color suffered more widely and severely in the latest example of health inequities throughout America. What must Congress do to close the health care gap? I'll start with you, Dr. Corey. Uh, Thank you. Actually, I, I was hoping to answer that last question because like healthcare, what we saw last year represented uh, a lot of issues coming to the fore. And just as we need to approach healthcare and the affordability and accessibility of healthcare, holistically, we need to deal with the issues that led to last year's uh, unrest. Getting to healthcare, we need to do an overhaul of the healthcare system. We have to make it affordable. We have to make it accessible. We have to make it efficiency. As a physician, I see how inefficient it is. I see how large the hospital medical industrial complex is. And the issues of disparity are real. It's also not just COVID, but breast cancer in black women is 30% higher. Prostate cancer is 30% higher in men, uh, black men. So I think that what we need to do is to have people like me, physicians, healthcare workers in Congress, being able to interpret the data and provide not a Band-Aid, but a comprehensive healthcare plan so that everyone can have great life. Thank you. Ms. Brown, your thoughts on what Congress specifically can do to, lo to lessen the gap? Thank you. As it relates to healthcare, certainly um, moving towards a, a, a public option to ensure that everyone who um, lives in this country has uh, access to affordable, high quality healthcare. Healthcare is something that uh, we all deserve and should not be determined by our economic situation. So I also want to state on the record that if Medicare for all came up for a vote, I would be supportive of this. But as a, in addition to that, I've led the initiative in Cuyahoga County to declare racism as a public health crisis because of our infant mortality um, rates, which are third 
world with first class hospitals. So a lot of this is systemic and institutional racism that has had a disparate impact on communities of color, specifically black communities. So we need someone um, not only with the courage to be able to ask for more, but to be able to work collaboratively with the members of Congress and the administration to deliver a program and a policy that um, provides health, quality health care for all of the people in our country. You just mentioned that you would support Medicare for all. I'll ask first for just a show of hands of all of the candidates, who among you supports Medicare for all? Okay, um, I'm going to pick on you, Mr. Knight first, and then Mr. Johnson, that you did, I did not see your hands go up. Um, Mr. Knight, why, why do you not support that in concept anyway? Well, first we have to overhaul the whole healthcare system and we have to find ways to start financing many of these things. And we also have to be finding access to for quality care because with the last healthcare plans that we've had, we have some of the best hospitals in America and we don't have access to it. And when we have these programs, who is gonna get this, we're still gonna have these disenfranchised people who don't have the equal opportunity to see the better doctors to, in the better hospitals and the best facilities. So we have to be looking a way deeper and asking the why do we have some of the most quality healthcare in this state and a certain aspect of this, of this country and the people aren't getting equal access to it. Okay, Mr. Johnson. Well, I support the ACA with a um, public option. I, I support what President Biden and former President Obama put together um, the ACA has, covered, has allowed for 20 million, over 20 million people to be able to be covered. Right now we have um, private, about um, 50, about 68% of the folks have private plans. I think it would be too much of a shock, too much of a difference, it's too, too much too soon. I think um, based on what I've talked to, people want choice in their, in their healthcare and to keep their employer based or their private based um, insurance. I want them to be able to have that, but I also want to be able to the 17 million who are still eligible for Medicaid expansion under the ACA, we should go in and make that happen so that the ACA even grows more. Lower, um, you know, we need to lower the prescription drugs, but I'm standing with um, President Biden. I will not vote for Medicare for all if it's put before me as a con congressperson. I, don't, I think that's inconsistent. I'm standing with the ACA because of what is done and what, how it's brought people um, out of situations now that they can cover for themselves and their family. Mr. Barnes, I'd like to put uh, an extension of that question to you. The ACA recently survived um, yet another court challenge and appears to be pretty set. What would you like to see changed about the Affordable Care Act or how would you like to see it made more effective? There, there are several things. One is I think that we need to cross state borders to, to make the affordable care more uh, more. Um, competitive uh, in other states. The other thing that we need to do is we need to uh, look at what, if anything, can be done with the cost of drugs and how drugs are qualified for distribution. Right now, when they file for a new drug, um, that drug, that application begins the process for their 15 years. We need to move that up and put it in around when it is actually approved so that it could extend beyond that. And that would tend to drive down the cost. There's a big difference between the 15 years and sometimes over a period of time, 
uh, people have a lot more time to do that. Now that has been the case. And I think that is extremely important uh, that we look at those costs. And I think of course, Thank with the you. ACA, which I support, time. I think that Medicaid expansion. Okay. <laughs> um, Ms. Turner, could you talk a little bit more about to say Medicare for all, what in your mind is the ideal? What does that involve? The ideal is to make sure that everybody in this country has health care. I mean, it is really absurd, absurd, uh, um, asinine that in the wealthiest country on the face of the earth, we're debating about whether or not people deserve and saying that somebody would vote for it if it came to the floor versus leading on it is two different things. One million people in the great state of Ohio lost their employer-sponsored health care, but the pandemic has shown it, it ripped away all of the all of the doubt about having a commodified healthcare system. And because we're the wealthiest country on the face of the earth, we should ensure we are the only industrialized nation that does not have some type of universal healthcare. And when Medicare for all was first envisioned, it was envisioned as a system for all. No more co-pays, no more deductibles, no more premiums. And no one suffers the most than the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class, and we do not have a universal healthcare system that will be able to lift people. And oh, by the way, that type of system also helps businesses too. So it's something that we must do in the United States of America. Thank you. I do wanna ask a follow-up uh, on that. Do you see any role for private insurance in the system? I mean, for the extra things that people may want uh, beyond you know, the, the, the cosmetic kind of things, but it's not, the, the, the government will not control your, your, the health care itself in terms of you will still be able to go to your own doctor. It's just how it is paid for. So it's a misnomer that people won't get a chance to pick their own doctors. They will continue to pick their own doctors. And you know what? The system as it were, we're sicker and we pay more as a country. So the employer-based system, the commodification of healthcare does not work in the United States of America. Almost 100 million people are either underinsured or uninsured right now. Thank you. Ms. Brown, could you talk about Medicare for all and what in your mind that means? For, first of all, I want to I want to address the, uh, the, the comment about voting. This is what we are called to do. Um, and leading on legislation is exact is very important. And I think that the public option is a way that we can get to universal health care faster, more effectively, more immediately. Um, so yes, I, I also agree we all deserve to be able to have access to high quality healthcare. And again, as a person who has had the opportunity and the responsibility of dealing with um, legislation in some of the most turbulent and troublesome times in our nation's history, we are in a unique position where we have a slim majority um, with the Democrats here at, in DC, but that won't always be the case. So we have to be practical and pragmatic in how we approach some of these issues so that we can get to real results and not just rhetoric. Hey, thank you all. Another topic that was elevated, escalated the concerns were, during the pandemic is education. The pandemic disrupted all levels. Enrollment in preschools, especially among African-American, Hispanic, and lower income children dwindled. Concern about lost learning lingers. Low income students dominate the pandemic's college enrollment decline. Please discuss, and I'm gonna start with you, Mr. Shabazz, please discuss one significant step that Congress could take to help education recover. 
can I can I do my rebuttal first in terms of what we what was just spoke about what was just spoken over? If you'd like to trade your time, I'm good with that. I mean, I mean, I was raising my hand for a rebuttal. Sorry, I did not see you. Okay, so can I, I, I do did it also? Absolutely, go ahead. Okay, so a quick rebuttal. One thing really, really important. When I heard one of my colleagues said, that if it came to the floor, they'll do a vote. That's a nonsensical argument. But what they're really trying to do is they're being disingenuous. The reality of the situation is this. We have to put it to the floor. We have to make sure that Medicare for all gets in because they're supporting this idea of corporatism, having this having this huge effect and impact over the healthcare of America, where the majority of our bankruptcies are associated with medical debt. All right. So now I want to answer your question. You asked me specifically about things that we could do to increase in terms of our education, specifically, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I believe number one, uh, we we definitely need to hold our state legislators accountable and some of our federal legislators accountable who are trying to move away from this idea or notion that we shouldn't talk about what is critical race theory. We are in a civil rights movement again and, 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 and highlighting something specifically. The education specifically is pushing for heritage to be spoken of, the glorification of history as opposed to an analytical uh, comprehension of what happened so we don't go down the same pathway again. But I think that we need to definitely get into there, put more resources into these communities that have been left behind for so long. And we shouldn't, and, we're not, and another thing that needs to be held, account, uh, held accountable is this. You can't say that we're, we're, we declared racism a public health crisis when we're still trying to uh, invest $400 million into a new prison in this county. That's an that's an asinine statement again. So we. Okay. Mr. Barnes, you also have your hand, yes. Mr. Barnes, to respond to the health care question. So I'll yes, go to you. Yes, thank you so much. I, we made a promise to retirees and we should not shake up what they have confidence in. And I think that while we have to make sure that we have policy that is directed towards creating an opportunity for all Americans to have healthcare, we must keep our promise. And that is why we have a lot of problems within our society because America has not kept its promise and to talk about that is scaring our seniors. It should not happen. Okay. And Ms. Brown, you had your hand raised. I'm actually <laughs> able to focus on nine screens at once now. Um, did you want to respond to the education question? Well, to, to, to the point again that was made about, uh, first of all, declaring racism as a public health crisis and in response to putting things to a vote. Clearly, um, some of us don't know how legislation works because we're not elected officials. And so everything that we discuss doesn't necessarily have to come to a vote. But if it does, I would be in support of that. Additionally, the fact that we were able to successfully pass legislation to declare racism as a um, health crisis with bipartisan support um, is demonstrative of a fact that we are acknowledging an issue, a historical issue that has plagued our society for centuries. So we're not going to fix it overnight, but we're certainly in a better position because of the work that I've been able to do. So thank you very much. Mr. Knight, uh, I'd ask you to return to this question of schooling, of education. You're a wrestling coach, you're involved with kids. Is did we lose a year and a half? Are these kids gone or what can be done at the federal level to try to help recover their education? Well, I can start by just saying, which a lot of people, I just, I was with this program this weekend called the Minority Achievement Committee that we started in 1991 in Shaker Heights, Ohio, where older students were mentoring younger students to help them through struggles through a place like Shaker Heights and, and getting them used to these things. And what I learned, what I learned as a coach 
is it takes more than just legislation, a person, a parent, a teacher to help participate in this education. It's more of everything. It is what the Shaker Charter is. When, it, when African-Americans came to Shaker and started populating, they understood if we get out of the way and their parents and families participate, we'll have an opportunity for education to thrive. And that's where my family has been. Well, all seven of us went to college and we all had really great opportunities. But at the end of the day, it's going to take just more than legislation. It's going to take parental, family, community, and school participation to help better all of these kids. So we have to prepare programs to help that happen. Thank you. Let's see. I think just about now, uh, the Senate is taking up Joe Manchin's voting rights bill or the debate over a voting rights bill. I'll get to you, Mr. Corey, in a moment. Um, it is, it is not the bill that passed the House. It does, however, uh, make voter registration automatic, set election day as a holiday, require at least 15 days of early voting for federal elections, and it prohibits partisan gerrymandering, though it also requires voter IDs. This is a plan that President, former President Obama today endorsed. And I would like to ask you, while this is in the Senate, what do you think has the best chance of getting through the through the entire Congress and what would you support? So let's start with you, Ms. Smith. I would absolutely, absolutely uh, support Joe Manchin's bill. Uh, I think that, well, this is something I've been saying since this election started, is that I am one to go to the table and negotiate. And if we can negotiate something in, in common, that's what I would do. Now, it isn't what everybody wants, but it certainly would help uh, and give us access that we want. I don't think that we should turn down something that's really given us all that we want, just not all that we want. So yes, I would support Joe Manchin's bill. Okay. Uh, I wanna turn to Dr. Corey, you had your hand up. I assume it was the education question. Correct. Yes, if I could respond to that, because as a pediatrician, my special interest is the kids. And one of the chief reasons why I'm running is because what I saw this country go through with the COVID, with the lockdown, it was particularly hard, as you alluded to, on the children, especially children from the poor and those with physical mental impairments. They lost out on education. They lost out on socialization. They lost out on a warm lunch. We have to be better. We have to be better prepared. We need good schools in order to train good citizens for the competitive economies of the 21st century. And so this is one of the reasons why I'm running is because we need more people from the healthcare uh, to be participating in the decision-making. Uh, the Thank lockdown you. took too much uh, uh, of uh, a side effect uh, complications. Thank you. Jeff Johnson, uh, I'm, I'm gonna jump back <laughs> because I've got my screen rolling on what's going on with the mansion bill and the voting rights bill. Can you talk to me about what you would support in Congress regarding voting rights? Well, if you're asking me what I would support and what I want to is to for the people act the entire piece of legislation. Now, if you're asking me what's going to be the reality is that I think we have to look at Joe Manchin's um, um, compromise. He does put in there and Stacey Abrams has stated that 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 I accepted as well. There are some things that are missing, want to be able to deal with the dark money, want to be able to deal with the campaign financing and what Citizens United has done to this country. But I, I support the fact that we extended early vote. 
you got to be able to, I like registration when you, when you, as soon as, you know, same day registration, the ability to have drop boxes, the ability to just stop what's going on across the country when it comes to the state and what they're doing with their laws. So it's important that um, we do get as much as we can, but we still need to get the two um, cinnamon and as well as mansion vote, as well as um, deal with the filibuster that I support to get rid of actually. Okay, um, that says, Ms. Turner, I'd ask your thoughts, not only on voting rights, but on the filibuster. I know that's a different body than you're running for, but there's interaction, hopefully between both houses. Yeah, definitely filibuster reform is an absolute, we're not gonna get anything done without getting rid of the filibuster right away, it should be done. And when it comes to dealing with the, the mansion bill, I don't know why the people are asked to, to compromise on something like that. We have to undo Shelby v. Holder. You know, the Supreme Court definitely put the ball back into the court of the Congress. We have almost 400 bills traveling, legislatures all across this country. Ohio is one of them where Republicans are scaling back, back elections uh, or people's access to elections. So if we got Democrats compromising on it, what do we say to Republicans? So the For the People Act should pass, the John Lewis law should pass, Democrats should be standing and holding strong for voting rights. It is the reason why we right now control the presidency in both chambers of the Congress is because people came out to vote in mass for Democrats. And what did they vote for? I'm glad you asked. They asked for changes in their material conditions. And one thing that we cannot do is be the party that is standing up to scale back access to the ballot box. I don't think we should, we should give in on that. Ms. Brown? Thank you. I, I understand what it takes to get things done. Um, we have to be able to, to compromise so we can get some things done. Um, the stalemates that we continue to see in DC are the very reasons why we are in the predicament that we are in. Um, we need people, again, we're in a slim majority now, but what happens when, we're, when we aren't? Um, what happens when the Republicans are in the majority? Do we just reverse, every, reverse course on everything and every progress and every step that we've made? No, so we have to be able to work collaboratively and figure out how to get things done so that we can have legislation and policy that's built to last, not just some short-term quick fix because we have the majority. So um, I, I understand what it takes to compromise and I support um, Manchin's uh, negotiations and what he was able to get done. And then we come back to the table and get re and, and negotiate and, and put forth another uh, piece of legislation to address the things that we weren't able to do potentially in this bill. Mr. Shabazz, you had your hand up. Yeah, some of the individuals in this uh, race are just get spouting off political talking points and they're not giving anything of substantive material. Uh, specifically, uh, we need to go a lot further uh, than that, than that uh, bill specifically that was pushed forward. We need a 28th Amendment that addresses the Citizens United decision, which will repeal it. There's far too much money in these, in these campaigns that absolutely re, uh, removes and attenuates the ability for people who are actually genuine, who actually understand how policy works to get into those positions. So what happens is you see millions of dollars is flooding into these elections where your actual rights to voting are actually really being impacted. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Johnson? I just want to remind a couple couple of things. Number one is the filibuster has to go. It's it's just no. If we don't pass voting rights now, 
we won't be in office as Democrats to even um, have a chance. And second, I want to remind that when people voted in 2020 for change in the 11th district, they voted two to one um, in the primary, Democratic primary um, for, for Joe Biden versus Senator Sanders. So the, the vote for change in the 11th district was a vote for mod from center to left, Joe Biden. I, and, and I just have to continue to remind where they wanted us to go. And that was more of a continual moving forward, but not dramatic. Thank you. Ms. Smith. You know, I, I too believe, like I said, oh, am I talking, am I on? Oh yeah, I'm You're sorry. I, I too, I believe like uh, Senator Johnson that uh, it's not a question of whether we reform the filibuster. I think we just need to get rid of it. Uh, and when you talk about the steps that we've taken with Joe Manchin's bill or Senator Manchin's bill. I think that's the best route we can go because now we're, sign, we're showing a sign of bipartisanship. And I think um, someone mentioned that. It's very important that since all of these years has passed since Trump was in, that we didn't have even an inkling, not even an inkling of bipartisanship. So this is a great step in what we need to do. Okay, thank you. Mr. Barnes, um, last week, 11 U.S. mayors announced they're forming local commissions to advise them on implementing and overseeing programs providing reparations for slavery. They say this would set an example for the federal government on how a nationwide program could operate. What do you think could be done, should be done at the federal level regarding reparations? The answer is yes. And I had my hand up for rebuttal. <laughs> Okay, I'm yeah, and, and for for both the education as as well as the filibuster. And I was wondering if I could uh, give a brief comment on both of those issues. Um, keep it brief, please. Okay, well, number one, um, we're not getting the job done with education. In the state of Ohio, we have 615 school districts. Um, if we look at the number of individuals who are going to college, um, it, it, if we were a company, we'd be out of business. But we need to make sure that we give our young people skills, career technical skills that are consistent with the needs of the job market. Um, I think that the filibuster is something, there's a consequence for winning elections. And one of those is that you're in charge and you have to take charge and move forward. And so the filibuster is getting in the way of policies for which people in America voted for. And so okay. I support that. With respect to the issue of yeah, let, reparations. Let's discuss reparations. I, okay, I support reparations. I think that it's extremely important for America to be true to what it has on paper. And I think that uh, we have to make sure that for all of the abuses, all of the um, discriminatory practices that have been done by people operating under the color of law have a responsibility under the rule of law to ensure that individuals are made whole. And so the mayors, that's a first important first step. Uh, what I would encourage all of them to do with respect to that is that I think systematically they need to look at their shops first and they need to incorporate what they learn from their systems into what they're trying to do with national policy. And so I think that an intervention, uh, with the, which is a part of what the Barnes plan is focused on, 
is to bring about a process where we can look at our institutions and see how we can bring about positive change. Okay, thank you. Uh, Mr. Knight, could you address reparations and what, if any, you think would be most effective? Well, first of all, we these it's very disappointing how we bring this because I think it puts African-Americans in a stalemate because in reality, we can't even pass the John Barnes. I mean, we can, I'm sorry, John. We can't, we can't even pass legislation for voting rights. And then we think we're going to pass legislation, which is going to be to give 41 million African-Americans a million dollars or $2,000 a month. There are other things that we can do that, that can be given towards our communities and to people going where it's, you know, getting kids to college, getting people, uh, you know, I would like to rather start with free junior college. And then we would start with, you know, debt relief and, and also encouraging and when kids get opportunities to go to graduate school, have those things taken care of. Because I don't know fiscally how this country is gonna be able to do that. And putting us in this stalemate, it, it's just, it's really disingenuous making people believe that it's, this is a real reality. Dr. Corey, your thoughts? Well, there's three issues I'd like to address. Uh, the reparations, I think, is a complex issue, which also uh, borders on the issue of guaranteed income, which was brought up by, I think, presidential candidate Yang. Uh, uh, and so I think that the, the issue is really in the details. What does it mean? Who's going to qualify? What's the implications for the economy? And will it really help to uh, make uh, better schools, a better economy, uh, for people to have good, stable, uh, prevailing wages. Second issue, I mean, I, I would like to weigh in was the filibuster. We have to be very careful because one thing we learned from history is that things change and that there's a, sort of a pendulum swing from one side to the other side. And so we need to be careful because something like that could be used against us, just like I believe Senator Schumer's nuclear option was used against the Democratic Party when the Republicans gained control. So we have to be very careful. The third issue I'd like to address is very, very important, and that's electoral reform, which includes not just guarantee everybody having uh, a right to vote and that making it insured, but we also need to cut down on the dark money, on the power elite, because the politics Thank is in the hands of the few and not the, uh, the people. And we need to have also Thank you. laws that will prevent candidate suppression so anyone can run for Congress. Okay. Um, Ms. Brown, could you talk, private prisons have become big employers in rural communities, but also in places like Youngstown, economically distressed and, and looking for alternatives. How do you stand on the use of private prisons at the federal level? I do not support private prisons. I, I don't support the, the federal level um, having private prisons. It's, 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 a, it's one of those things that, again, is systemic, it's oppressive. Um, it is very much impacting communities of color, particularly people that look like me. Um, and so to be able to profit off of people in prison is, is definitely wrong. And I don't believe that we should be funding private prisons um, with our federal dollars to, or I'm sorry, fund, fund, private prisons should not be a thing that exists. And certainly as a legislator at the federal level, I would oppose that. Uh, vehemently. It just goes against everything that I stand for. Ms. Turner, your thoughts? Definitely private prisons should not exist, nor should private detention centers, immigration detention centers. I will say what I've said before, that the private sector should not be able to make a profit off of other people's misery. 
not at all. And we've been doing that for far too long in the United States of America. And one of the ways that we can kind of transition those workers, because I know that the concern is jobs. What happens to those folks who work in those facilities? Well, the greening of America and the Green New Deal is one way to put people back to work in jobs that will pay more than a living wage. And we have so much work that needs to be done uh, in this district, in this state, and also in this nation, but no private prisons. What is done in the name of the, of the people matters. And in our name, we should not give tax dollars to people to make profit off of other people's miseries. No more private prisons and no more private uh, detention centers. Dr. Corey? Uh, yes, I would be concerned about uh, the privatization of prisons because there would be a failure, I think, in transparency as well as accountability. We need to do much better in uh, reforming our judicial system so that individuals, when they serve their time, can be reinstituted uh, in society and be productive. And I'd be concerned that having a private enterprise would prevent that transparency or accountability. It's bad enough with federal and government prisons, let alone getting it into private hands. Mr. Shabazz, you wanted to respond? I actually wanted to be able to address the reparations question, considering I'm one of the only candidates who advocate for it heavily. Uh, specifically, we, um, I will fight and advocate for reparations um, for the descendants of slavery. Um, as, we can, as we can check the history, which is very important for us to be educated on this process, and we saw the Civil, Civil Liberties Act of 1988, where we saw restitution was paid for the Japanese, uh, Japanese Americans that were held in, held in the internment camp, as well as we saw how Abraham Lincoln was ordered to implement economic uh, recovery for slave owners in the Emancipation Proclamation, the DC Act, which was signed into law. Okay, so, and I would like to address the privatized prison system specifically. Privatized prison in industries are predicated on the basis of the financial status of businesses, so they're profiting off of, of the incarceration of people. So it's absolutely abhorrent, and I've admittedly uh, opposed them, and specifically as your next congressman, I will fight to make sure that we remove privatized prison systems, and we actually have a complete overhaul of the, of the criminal justice system in general, because again, we are forcing people into these cells instead of actually just putting more resources into the communities, such as like I stated before, again, how we see people trying to put $400 million into New jails, instead of putting $400 million into lifting up those communities. That's what happens all the time in these communities. They leave them behind, neglect them, don't give them the resources, and then put them in a prison cells when they can't actually provide for themselves or their families. That's a problem. Thank you. Ms. Smith, um, the Biden administration is endorsing a bill to eliminate the sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine offenses at the federal level and to resentence those who were convicted under the old federal laws. Please talk about that, that specific change and other changes in sentencing reforms that you'd become an advocate for. You're muted. I think that crack and cocaine has had a dis uh, disparity for years. And, and yes, there should be a federal law uh, to make it uniform across the state. Uh, it's unfair and it uh, really uh, impacts the poor and black and brown communities more than anything, anything else. Uh, what was the rest of your question? I'm sorry. Just what other sentencing reforms do you think should be implemented nationally at the federal level? 
there every all sentencing reform there should be across the board sentencing reform uh, because sentencing is disproportionate across the board uh, we know that even when you get the death penalty sometimes what you get the death penalty for in, in Combs County you go to Cuyahoga County and you don't get the death penalty I mean you will get the death penalty so uh, I think sentencing need to be sentencing needs to be reformed across the board because sometimes it's just a matter of uh, racism. Thank okay. you. Mr. Johnson, your thoughts on reform, specifically the crack and powder cocaine disparity, but others that you would advocate? Well, clearly I would get rid of the um, disparity. I think I remember when I was a councilman in the late 80s when crack hit Cleveland. So I understand initially why folks started to, to really go after the violence associated with crack. But we, we also, but we need to get rid of that. We also need to decriminal, decriminalize the use of marijuana. I would also make changes where people who use drugs don't need to be incarcerated, but people who sell drugs um, need to be. 20 years ago in August, I left a federal prison myself. I, and I understand the need to stop with the warehousing that occurs in the federal level. And we have to focus in on criminal justice reform, focused on actually allowing folks to do their time and come out and have a future, have a pathway. Reentry is significant and a big, big push for myself. And I think we need to, to focus in on a criminal justice system as well as the state and use our power in federal to get the state because the state prisons aren't well. Uh, doesn't do anything as well. And I sat on a sentencing commission, so I have been very involved with this. And so I'm focused on that as one of my priorities. Mr. Knight, your thoughts? Yes, I mean, I agree with just about everything that they've all said, but the one thing that I do want to address is how we are legalizing people and corporations being able to sell marijuana in the states and be able to get all these licenses to be able to sell it medically. And there's so many people with petty, petty, you know, petty charges or big charges from small amounts of marijuana use or, or being in their car, and, you know, and have long, long drawn out sentences and have put these people behind the, behind the bar, most of the people African-Americans. So when they start being 16 years old, then all of a sudden you get a charge for weed and then you start being a part of the system. So we need to start with reforming those things. If we're gonna allow one group of people to be able to sell marijuana and profit off it, we need to have way more people benefit from these things. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ms. Turner, we talked earlier about some of the frustrations and horrible issues that emerged from the pandemic, but what initiatives were either implemented or expanded during the COVID crisis that you think should become a longer term part of how our nation runs, how it operates? In terms of the Biden administration's, the COVID relief package, was, which was $1.9 trillion, in that package was uh, the child tax credit. And, you know, parents are going to be receiving relief. And through that, just that one portion of that policy change, cutting childhood poverty in half. Now, the thing about very good, excellent, I definitely support it, but it is temporary. So I would like to see that made permanent and that we as a nation expand that because if we can cut childhood poverty in half, we might as well go all the way and, and cut it 100% and, and to make sure that that kind of thing is, is permanent. It also shows as by way of example that with that bill, that poverty is a policy choice. 
so we can make new choices through public policy and eradicate poverty as the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth there is absolutely nothing that we cannot do if we reimagine and really have a willingness for transformation we can get this done and eradicate poverty in the united states of america thank you mr shabazz what came out of the pandemic as a public policy that you think should be continued and or expanded? Uh, I want to say I give a nod to uh, my colleague Nina Turner on some of the things she stated definitely. Uh, but I also want to add specifically is that more of the collaborative efforts to actually really treat and, and prevent the poverty as she, as she addressed is a policy direction. That's the reason what it is. So what, what are some of the things that we could do about that specifically? Again, we need to be investing into these communities. We can no longer go on this pathway where we allow these individuals to just eat and fight and survive. People are in survival mode in these streets. When you look outside, people are dying and being killed all over this country. And what's happening is we are, we are going to keep allowing these situations to fester and keep permeating. But reality-wise, we need a leader in this, this position because we are in the civil rights era. As you see right now, you see all these anti-protest bills, these anti-voting bills. We're looking at an increased amount of oppressive techniques to actually impede on actual progress. And I know that some of my colleagues here, they don't wanna rock the boat, but listen, the boat always will rock on the water. And I've been on a ship before. If I have to go through the seas, the rough seas of oppression to get progress, I will always fight for progress. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Dr. Corey, what did you see come out of the pandemic that you think should be continued, expanded? I saw a lot of panic in pandemic. Um, this question and the previous question dealing with substance abuse, I think indicates the need to think differently. The government programs on war against drugs and the war in poverty over the past six years have been failures. We need better public health authorities in guiding uh, policy. We need to restore, surprisingly, confidence of the people in the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health. And one way is to be honest with the American people. And I don't think that there was so much honesty, but rather polarization, which exacerbated the terrible uh, COVID uh, pandemic. So those were, I think, teaching lessons. Um, and there's disparity in addition to the physical issue. And there's psychological isolation that's, a, that's associated with both substance abuse as well as the pandemic. I say, and some, I think this really gives us some thought as to who should be leading this country and who should be relying upon, whether it should be lawyers or whether it should be healthcare workers, you know, who can put uh, their voice into how the policy is made and to avoid the extremes of polarization. Uh, the lockdown has been catastrophic for so many people. Um, the obesity, suicide, drug overdoses, the 30% of, of small businesses that have went uh, bankrupt. This, this indicates that health is really a complex issue that is dealt with politically as well. Thank you. Ms. Smith, did you see something coming out of the pandemic that you believe should become a permanent and or expanded part of US federal policies? Yes, I did. And, and that was awareness. Awareness how our government has failed us for so many years and refused to do something about it. And not only refused to do something about it, but act like it wasn't happening. Um, I, I think that instead of maintaining some of these programs, 
I think that we should find a way to be more proactive in what we have found and what we have become more aware of. So I think looking at it in those terms, we can stay ahead of the ball or ahead of the game and make sure that we don't have to see all of this poverty and, and sickness and disparities in health and also our kids lagging behind in education without any resources. So we see that now, we see how, how uh, child childhood, uh, I'm sorry, the child care centers really help and aid us and help women stay on the, in the workforce. So that awareness has brought us uh, to a light that I, I hope will shine forever and our government will no longer fail us in these things. Mr. Johnson, um, the infrastructure bill is still being negotiated. There's still hope for some kind of compromise on it. The one of the biggest infrastructure programs that the nation ever got involved in was the interstate highway system. And while that has many, many people who give it a lot of support and plaudits, it also managed to segregate cities within themselves, uh, cut off a number of neighborhoods, uh, especially African American neighborhoods. What should be done to ensure any new infrastructure plan benefits minority communities? I think the difference is that from the beginning, we have right now sitting at, at the desk, sitting at the one of the Oval Office, someone who has made a commitment to make sure that minority communities are not um, disrespected or, or treated differently. So I'm comfortable that we have a Congress and a, and a Senate, as well as a president, who will make sure that we're in the room when we talk about how to implement a, um, a infrastructure bill. It's it, as well as not just roads and bridges, but of course, broadband as well. I live in Glenville, which has been redlined when it comes to the digital, um, the divide. And so that is something that we have to be at the table. We are at the table and we will make sure that the policies of implementation, once we get it passed, of course, we'll be able to um, be able to be there and make sure that we're watching it and make sure that there's inclusion, economic inclusion on the other side as well for those who are, who, for those who are doing the work. Mr. Knight, what are your thoughts on ways to ensure the minority communities are at the table? Well, um, it's it's interesting because when you talk about this, these bills, they always seem to talk to a, a certain audience and they're missing part of the bill that they're trying to get rid of is part of the things that help with child care and health care, help, which helps benefit women. And we need to make sure we fight for that because that is, you know, once again, we talk about education, we talk about these opportunities, we need to make sure that these women and, and they have these real opportunities. I'm, I'm the youngest of seven and I have four sisters and, 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 I, and, I, and I couldn't imagine them not having proper opportunity. What I would like to talk to when it comes to minority opportunities, when people do, you know, being a minority contractor, sometimes we don't all get access to minority contracts. Sometimes there's favors given, maybe sometimes there's things that are given to certain people. And what we need to be able to do is be able to hold all of our people accountable for what they do when they're giving out minority opportunities and minority contracting to all, not just, you know, not just favors to people that they know. Ms. Brown. Thank you. I am excited that we have uh, an administration that looks at things through this lens of equity and inclusion. Um, and also the fact that uh, we have several at the table who already put in a request to invest billions of dollars towards our internet um, crisis that we experienced with the lack of broadband internet services throughout the nation. I also believe that we should be using these resources to address our lead pipes. 
Um, these are things that are being discussed. These are necessary things. And these are things that will definitely continue to have um, an, it, it, a positive effect and reverse some of the decades of um, deterioration and discrimination in communities of color and low income communities that have had um, inferior products and, and materials installed into our communities. And so we need someone who will be able to be a partner, not a puppet, but a partner to be able to work with the administration to negotiate, to ensure that we are getting the resources that we need in the 11th congressional district. And the fact of the matter is I'm best positioned to do that. Ms. Turner, what are your thoughts? Well, it is encouraging to see what the administration is doing. Definitely the federal government was complicit in creating some of the systemic challenges that we are facing right now. None of these challenges are new. So it is absolutely important that communities of color, a particularly African-American community, not only be at the table, but the resources as they are being uh, permeated throughout our community, that those resources are ladies are focused into making sure that communities of color actually get those that they actually get the jobs. I mean, a lot of times when that money is flowing through, the community does not necessarily get a chance to benefit. Once upon a time, and I'm sure that uh, Senator Johnson remembers this, Senator Smith and probably Representative Barnes too, we had the Fannie M. Lewis law in the city of Cleveland. And that law under the leadership of Councilwoman Fannie M. Lewis was designed to ensure that when tax dollars come through, the people's money comes through, that the residents of the city of Cleveland actually get a chance to benefit through having jobs. I would like to see that kind of law you know, that kind of policy position be permeated through not only the 11 congressional district, but throughout the country to ensure that taxpayers' dollars are laser focused on the communities that need them most, not just in Thank the you. infrastructure, but also in them having the jobs. Thank you. Dr. Corey, I want to touch on alternative energy um, from in Lake Erie. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm I'm apparently having trouble seeing your hand. Maybe you need to okay. put it way over your head. Okay, there we are. Go ahead, Mr. Barnes. Okay, thank, thank you very much. I think um, as it pertains to the minority community, we, we need leadership. Um, I remember when Opportunity Corridor was coming into Cleveland and uh, my colleague and I sat down and we talked about that which resulted in minority set-aside of over $60 million. At each step, in each of the areas of government that we have, we have got to set a goal and require the management to get it done. And that is what is extremely important. And that would be our focus based on having competent staff that would be monitoring that on an ongoing basis. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Dr. Corey, I wanted to talk to you or have you start the discussion on alternative energy uh, from a wind farm in Lake Erie to an electric vehicle battery plant in Lordstown. There's on one level, there's increasing emphasis of it as part of Ohio's economy, yet the state is okayed supporting traditional energy such as coal over green energy. What can Congress do that will both benefit Ohio and the nation to support a transition between energy sources? Let me see if I can link these, that question and the previous question, if I may. Absolutely. And that is, the war on poverty was started six years ago and when 20% of the American uh, population was living below poverty. 
60 years later in our district, it's 23%. That's a failure. That's a disgrace. Government has not been able to solve that problem. What we need is to think differently, whether it's about poverty, which is a major issue, and energy independence, which is a major issue, because we need to have Cleveland Akron thrive. And there, I believe that there has to be a partnership between the public monies and private companies, that there has to be an efficiency and stimulus, whether it's to eradicate poverty or to develop renewable sources of energy. In that particular case, when I go to Congress, I feel that my expertise lies in science and technology, and I can evaluate critically what is working and what is not working with the optimism of what new technologies can be. But I think the answer is that government isn't the answer to everything. It's got to be a public-private partnership. Thank you. Uh, Senator Smith, your uh, response to this, um, what can be done at the federal level to encourage alter or to in, allow communities to transition from one type of energy to another? I think what we need to do is set realistic goals. Uh, you know, when we look at 280 million cars on the road now, uh, versus 5% of those being electric, uh, it's going to be very difficult to meet a goal of 2050, uh, I'm sorry, 2030 rather than 2050. Uh, I, I think that we have to make sure that the people who we're going to put in these roles as a, uh, as a workforce, we're going to have to make sure that they're trained, properly trained. We're going to have to make sure that they have the skills. We're going to have to make sure that they're mathematically inclined and also have the scientific knowledge to do this. So if we don't, we'll fail at this. That's why we need more time. And that's why we need to make sure we set the right kind of goals to get there. Um, I, I understand that we need it very badly. I understand what's happening to our earth and to, to our people. But if we don't set the, the realistic goals, then we are setting ourselves up for failure. Mr. Knight, um, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I'm a big defendant of our water. It is without Lake Erie, the city is going to be, this area is going to be absolutely in such a dire straits. That is our biggest resource. If we don't fight to protect it, if we don't find other ways for renewable energy in our area, that is going to go down the drain and we'll be Flint, Michigan, and we'll be sitting here worried about lead pipes and false water. And where do you think it's going to, who's going to be affected most? Probably these minority communities. So what we have to be working on is defending the water and work in finding different renewable energy sources so we don't have to so we're not sit up so we're not sitting sitting back and be like wow this happened to us just like all these other places be, let's be proactive in protecting our, our environment mr barnes i think that we have to have a practical plan I think that that person out there who has um, who has a car and they're going to work, I don't know if they're going to be able to to be able to afford some of the new technologies out there. Not that they may not want it. So this, in and of itself, is going to create a different situation where I think that it's going to be a longer term before we can reach the opportunity to do that because of challenges like that for impoverished people. 
Okay, thank you. Mr. Shabazz, I, I'd ask you to pick up on that um, and, and also perhaps discuss public transit in that context as well. Um, okay, uh, specifically, um, I think what, number one, we need to address the fact that uh, continuous process improvement is the way that we need to be moving towards. Right now, the constraints that we're facing is individuals who've been in these offices for far too long, and they forgot what it's like to actually be in some of these positions that some people are growing up in, and some of, some of which have never even been in these positions. So we need to move towards uh, uh, more renewable energy resources. Um, because the current pathway that we're on, we're, at, we're on a destructive pathway where we're destroying our aquatic marine life. And America is, as one of the leading uh, nations within the global north, it's imperative that we are we're performing our due diligence to reduce our actual global impact on, on car, our carbon impact on this environment. So uh, we should definitely move towards making sure we have more of those renewable resources as opposed to utilizing fossil fuels and those coal and all those things in that nature. Um, and specifically in terms of addressing the issues as it pertains to transit, we must increase more funding, uh, especially in these areas that are critically, uh, uh, where there's specifically where you see large numbers of the, of the black and minority communities, where they've been absolutely left behind. So we have to put more of those resources in those areas specifically, thank you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Johnson, I'd ask you to pick up on public transit, which was battered both by the pandemic and by some Trump administration policies throughout the 11th district, which includes some pretty disparate communities, what do you think should be done about public transit? Sorry, um, I think we need to invest in public transportation. It's clear that the state of Ohio down in Columbus, they don't, they don't support, I'm not talking about the Democrats, but the, those who are running, they don't support public transportation. So the federal government has to create partnerships. Uh, public transportation is an economic development tool. We need to expand it into the, the county and, and, and the five county region. We have to be able to uh, put it together and, and connect the dots, allow for people to move around, uh, be able to go to jobs, be able to have the ability to be um, to expand their lives. And, 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 and that's it's also an anti-poverty weapon as well. So I see public transportation as a critical factor in fighting poverty as well as being able to help folks um, live their dreams and be expanded. And the federal government is gonna be the ones provide the grants to the local governments and not go through the state on that. So I'm a, a big supporter of public transportation, I always have been. Thanks. The 11th district, I, I think I've heard Dr. Corey mention both Akron and Cleveland, and some people may not know the shape of that district as it is today, but it does stretch from Cleveland through the inner ring suburbs and down to Akron. Those communities have a lot in common, but they also have a lot of differences. So I'm going to ask this of all of you, if you're in Washington, how do you ensure representation of that very stretched out community while you're in DC? And I would ask you to start, Ms. Turner. Well, definitely ensuring that uh, the citizens in, in the Akron part of the district feel very much apart. I'm the only candidate who has an office in the Akron area right now. I've dealt with and, and been in the Akron community, even though electorally, it definitely was not, you know, some I didn't represent that area, but civically I've been there. I want to make sure that we have many community meetings bringing both parts of the 11 congressional district to, together on a regular basis. That is vitally important. And so as the next member of Congress, I will definitely ensure that the Akron area has strong staffing, uh, just as the Cleveland area as well. 
And it is important that we rise or fall together in the entire district. And I certainly have heard from many people in the Akron area that somehow they feel left out. Redistricting definitely caused a lot of havoc. Uh, people in the Akron area, unfortunately, have uh, four uh, Congress people. So gerrymandering is, is a problem, and it is something that Ohio is one of the worst gerrymandered states, and I fear that it is going to get worse. But it's definitely making sure that both communities feel as though they are one. Ms. Brown. Thank you. I do have an Akron office, 501 Kelly Street, um, Kelly Avenue, and I will continue to um, build alliances and relationships in both Akron and Summit County. I'm proud to say of all the candidates, I have over 100 local elected officials who have endorsed my candidacy within the district, and that's including Summit as well as Cuyahoga County. And these are people that are already closely connected to the ground in addition to over 50 prominent clergy members in the African-American community and over um, a dozen unions throughout the district that have supported my candidacy. So keeping those lines of communication open and working collaboratively, collaboratively with them as I've, I've been doing is something that I would continue to do if I am so fortunate to be the next representative of the 11th Congressional District. So I too believe that um, keeping that relationship strong will be imperative, not only now, but in the future, even after the lines um, will be redrawn. Mr. Barnes, how do you represent Cleveland and Akron and all points in between? You're muted. By representing the 11th Congressional District of Ohio and Northeast Ohio, it's hard for me to understand how some people in our district have felt as though they have not become a part of the discussion. And we must open it up to everyone. And not only geographically, but we must also look at the 107 different ethnic groups that live and work in Northeast Ohio to include them in the process so that we can build a better tomorrow around the idea of having discussions that are important towards building not only here locally, but internationally. So that Cleveland once again can restore its position as the best location in the nation. So that when you, when I sit down with President Biden, we will look at the 11th Congressional District as an example for America and looking at how we can restore the opportunity so that people will have a reason to believe they have a stake in the future. Dr. Corey. Yes, I'm old enough to remember Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the House, who said all politics is local. And that's true. Um, and as Mr. Barnes has said, I think there's something like 107 different uh, ethnic groups in the area. Uh, our strength is in the diversity. Our challenge is to make it inclusive and equal. Certainly step one would be to have a diverse uh, offices in, in throughout the community, employing people from the specific neighborhoods and listening for me to listen to the individuals of the different neighborhoods to find common ground and to find areas that we need to work on. So what's really important is to be local. And I plan to learn the entire district until it's redistricted. But I assume that with the courts, that this will remain pretty much a Cleveland area. And my hope is that Akron is able to get a little bit more unity um, so that their voices can be best heard. But until then, I will serve as a representative to everybody in the community. 
and will employ everyone in my offices. Thank you. Mr. Shabazz. Is that 60 seconds or the 30 seconds? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought I saw your hand up. Clemson, is that for the 60 seconds or the 30 seconds? 60. Okay. Uh, number one, I wanted to address something specifically for all the viewers and listeners here about how shady the politics, the political system really is. Um, out of all of these candidates, how many candidates have another person who jumped in a race with the same last name? I want everybody to think about that. <laughs> Just think about that specifically. That lets you know what's actually truly happening here in this whole political process. It's because they're trying to really impede on, on progress for you, for all of you who are listening. And they're trying to impede on the progress of the youth actually stepping up and being in the driver's seat of this whole political process. Now, to answer your question specifically addressing how we're going to make sure being a more, being more constituent based uh, Congress member, I'm going to make sure that we have our office of staff. We're going to make sure that we are we are actually reaching into these communities, make sure we're actually talking about voter outreach, education. We need to have a more informed citizenry because what has happened is People don't know how to call files, so you can't call. If you, if you don't know what's fair, you don't know how to call what's file. This is the problem that's really impeding on our process. We are facing governmental leaders who have forgot that they, they serve at the will of the people. That is how it works. You serve at the will of the people. You don't tell the people what to do. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Smith? Well, it's just very difficult for me to consider uh, Akron as a, as a different district. I look at the 11th district as one district. So what I would do is form a coalition, or I should say a summit. I will call together a summit, and we would figure out an agenda for our district, the 11th congressional district. I think, uh, well, I shouldn't say I think, I know for a fact that the people in Akron feel that they have not had any leadership. They say it over and over again. I would be present. I would be in the district. I would be accessible to people in the district. So um, in terms of having a district and what would I do, I would make sure I was present and represent all the people. Now I have to uh, address uh, uh, Councilwoman Brown in terms of all the support you got from the elected officials, I would assume that if I was the Democratic chair, I would get that same support. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead, 30 seconds. I guess I would assume if I had decades of experience, I could earn that same support, but I've been working hard with those folks for the last nine years to earn their support. They do not have any, any um, owe me anything for that support that I've earned. I'm indebted to them as the chair, I serve the people in those positions that have supported me, not the other way around, but thank you for the compliment. Mr. Knight, no how would you ensure, how would you ensure representation of the entire district, Cleveland and Akron and all parts in between? Well, I, I think I'm the only one that's actually hit all the areas due to me coaching and being a part of the you know, working community. I've even worked in all the one of these areas. I know a coach, teacher, family members from people that I coach work with. And this is what, I, what they constantly tell me. They feel that the Democratic Party is leaving them behind. We are gonna miss out on a great opportunity to re bring these people back into the fold. And if we don't, if we keep misstepping, we are going to lose Ohio forever. It doesn't wanna be alarmist about these things, but it is the truth. And what we need to constantly, we need to listen to everyone from Bath to Pepper Pike. Okay, from Euclid to 116. 
This isn't, this isn't trying to be dramatic, maybe a little bit is, but we have to reach out to all of them and stay in these communities and make them feel that they are part of this party and keep them a part of this party. Mr. Johnson? I absolutely would. Um, I really believe in constituent services. I would ab absolutely have a congressional office um, in the district. Uh, Marsha Fudge and, and past, um, and past um, con Congress people, Louis Stokes, as well as Stephanie Zubbs Jones, at least in the Cleveland area, had offices. I did it when I was a councilman. Constituent services are so critical and so important. I also would have an advisory committee made up of, of residents as well as of um, stakeholders. And, and there are five municipalities in Summit County, and they all will be part of that. Um, so I just want to make sure that's clear. There's 32 municipalities in a whole district, five of which in Summit County. And I, and I would make sure that Akron and the other four are part of every, every major decision I make and for them to help advise me. We haven't run out of questions, but we have run out of time for the questions portion of our, of our session. And so now we're going to move to the closing statements. Again, those were drawn at random and the candidates will each have 45 seconds to deliver those final statements. I'll run through the order quickly. Chantel Brown, Tariq Shabazz, John Barnes, Seth Corey, Will Knight, Nina Turner, Jeff Johnson, and Shirley Smith. So Ms. Brown, would you begin? Yes, thank you very much for again for doing this. I just wanna remind the people that this is a rich legacy that we're looking to fulfill. We need someone with the courage of a Lewis Stokes who demanded that we have reflective representation in our government. And I have done that when I declared racism as a public health crisis. We need someone with the connection to the community of a Stephanie Tubbs Jones who could get into any room from the penthouse to the projects, from the streets to the suites to make sure she had a seat at the table so that we were not on the menu. And I've been doing that. We need someone with the competence, character, and co compassion of a Marsha Fudge who has elevated to the Secretary of HUD. And I have that. So I'm asking you to vote for someone who has the resume, the record, and the relationships to deliver the results. This is a fight for the future. I'm Chantel Brown, and I'm asking for your support. Thank you. Mr. Shabazz. I'm Tariq Shabazz. I look forward to having your vote on August 3rd for U.S. House of Representatives for the 11th Congressional District of Ohio. This seat is imperative that it is filled by an individual who's actually educated in this political process because what are we doing is we're seeing people being lifted up and being pushed forward when they have no idea how any of these things work on the federal level. Uh, specifically, one of the things I will address as your next congressman, I will fight to make sure we, are, we bolster our cybersecurity infrastructure, something that has not been talked about enough. We're seeing these huge pipeline attacks. We're seeing all of these things that are impeding on progress and national security of this country. Allow me to fight for reparations to make sure that we address the actual uh, egregious deeds committed through slavery and also have a restorative process to it. Medicare for all, an environmentally justice-based system. And as well, we need to address the environment. I I'm gonna push for more hearings to put on the actual military to make sure that, that highlights the things that we've been doing in impacting our environment. Thank you so much, both for Tariq Keshavaz. Have a good one. Thank you. John Barnes? VoteBarnes.com. I want to thank the City Club for having this important debate today. I think that it's extremely important for our community. In Congress, I will put people first. I always have and I always will. Barnes is about the business of saving lives. And many of our people are challenged right now, and we need a different level of leadership 
that is going to build a better tomorrow and give people a reason to believe they have a stake in the future and an opportunity for their children in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Seth Corey. Thank you. In two weeks, we will be celebrating our 4th of July when we celebrate our freedoms as a great new country. The Declaration of Independence beckoned us with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that document was written when Blacks were enslaved and women had no political rights. Our country has made progress, but we need to do so much more. Justice Ginsburg said, real change, enduring change happens one step at a time. That step can begin with this very special election for our district. I'm an inpatient person for progress, but I'm also one who doesn't think in sound bites. Simple slogans cannot solve our complex problems. I want to earn your confidence and trust. I am Seth Corey, and I humbly ask for your support and vote. CoreyForOhio.com. Thank you. Will Knight. Thank you. Once again, we have a leadership void in our area, in our city, in our county, in our state, and especially in our party. And what we need to start addressing is that, those issues. I wanna be a leader for this area. I wanna be a leader for the city and the state and this party to help rebuild some of these, some of the issues that we have here. And I'm hoping that I can make some young people proud who are starting to feel the pinch and feel the fact that they're being left behind. And I wanna also assure people that I am not that person that's gonna leave anyone behind. I'm gonna help moving forward. I'm gonna reach back to move forward. Like, the, like our creed with the Minority Achievement Committee, reach back to move forward. Thank you. Nina Turner? When I think about running for this office, uh, many things enter my mind, but definitely the memory of my mother who died at a young age of 42 years old with her dreams deferred. Many of you are familiar with the poet Langston Hughes. And he asked a very important question, what happens to a dream deferred? I am running to ensure that the residents of the 11th Congressional District from Greater Cleveland to Greater Akron, that very few people have to ask that question about what happens to, to a dream deferred. I have the vision to help to provide provision for the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class from all walks of life. I do believe, similarly, in the words of Booker T. Washington, that there are two ways of exerting one's strength. One is by pushing down and the other is by pulling up. You need to have somebody that will lead this community who does have a vision that understands being a partner does not mean being a puppet, that working with does not mean acquiescing to. So vote for Nina Turner for Congress, ninaturner.com. You will always know whose side I am on. My first, second, third, fourth, and fifth concern are the residents of the 11th Congressional Districts. Jeff Johnson. I'm ready to start from day one to go to Capitol Hill. Please don't send someone there who has to spend years in order for them to become effective. I've been a legislator for 23 years, but not just my resume, and resume is relevant, and achievement is relevant. It's also what I've done in the street. I fought for $15 an hour way before others was pushing it in Cleveland. I fought to remove poison lead from from housing, rental housing in Cleveland, we were able to finally get that. I have a list of achievement, but I also have a list of qualifications that, that is more than any other candidate. Don't go by just um, um, promises, but go by what's achievement. Re resume is relevant. I'm looking forward to the opportunity of taking my years of public service to Washington and starting from day one and fighting for poverty and other issues. Thank you, I ask for your vote. Shirley Smith. I will repeat something that I heard a politician say long ago. 
Councilwoman Brown, you are no Stephanie Tubbs Jones. But I want to say to the audience that I worked hard. I came from the bottom, the very, very low bottom, and climbed my way to the top. I worked hard to get here. I, I sacrificed myself, my family. I sacrificed the people around me to get where I am. Nobody gave me any position. I earned it. I earned it. I worked hard. I worked hard to gain whatever I have today. So I'm saying to you, you have trusted me once. I want you to trust me again because I work hard and I don't wait for people to give me anything or put me in a position. I will do as I always have. I will work for you and you can trust me. Thank Ms. you. I know these are closing statements, but let's be clear. I have earned everything that I've gotten, been elected and elected to every office that I ever held. I don't think any- Ms. Brown, Ms. Brown. In, this, in this race. Brown, our debate's over. <laughs> Thank you. Brown, this, Thank you. This, our, our debate is over. Schultz. Thanks. Thanks to all of you. And thanks for the passion that, that has been part of tonight and for the answers. And Schultze, thank you for your skillful moderation. We appreciate it. I also want to thank my colleagues, our member volunteers who are helping to keep time uh, in, uh, in the other room. And I want to thank all of you for showing up for candidate. I want to thank you candidates for your participation tonight, for your participation in this race, and for stepping up to serve the residents of Ohio's uh, 11th Congressional District. And I want to thank our viewers as well. I want to remind you too that early voting begins on the 7th of July and the election, the last day to vote is on election day. That's on the 3rd of August. We've been joined by all eight candidates. It's been a very fair, robust debate that provided all candidates an opportunity to, correct, to connect with you, our voters. Thanks again to Schultze and, uh, and to our City Club Debate Committee for coordinating this important event. All of the City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week. Thank you to thanks to generous support from Bank of America, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. Our debate tonight is just one example of the programming we produce year round. This is thanks to City Club members, sponsors, and donors who support conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can join them by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or simply texting the word donate to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582 and follow a few easy steps to make your donation. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Dan Malthrop. Our forum is now adjourned. <laughs>